You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. I love that video. <laughs> I love the book of Acts. Uh, as you can see, as you can see now, after watching that video, we are in for a bit of a wild ride for the next year and a half or so. That's the way it maps out in my schedule. It's going to take us about that long to get through this book. We're just going to take it chunk by chunk, take it a little bit slow. I want to begin with the first 11 verses. Would you follow along with me? Beginning in verse 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. And so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, Why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who is taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of God for the people of God this morning. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for your word. What a privilege it is for us to be here in this building, in this space, with a copy of uh, your written word in front of us, um, studying it together with other, other believers. Lord, most of us got up out of our warm beds this morning in our fairly warm homes, got to drive here in a relative comfort, to sit in a relatively comfortable seat uh, with the heat running and lights and fans. And, uh, or there are many believers across this world that don't have it uh, like we do, and yet here we are. So Lord, I thank you for everybody that showed up in this room today um, that made that decision when they got up, not to just stay in bed, not to play the lazy Christian thing and stay at home and watch on TV, but to actually show up and be in relationship with others as we study your word. God, I pray that you would come and speak powerfully, speak boldly. God, come and challenge us, nurture us, strengthen us, confront us, and change us. Lead us to the foot of the cross. pray, God, that you would do that, and then some, I trust you to do it. God, I love you in Jesus' name. Everybody said? Amen. I want to give you a brief summary. Just a brief summary of what we just read. Kind of get us into the story a little bit. Luke. Luke is the author of the book of Acts. Most people would say that Luke as an author, he wrote a a two-volume book. And you have the Gospel of Luke, and then you have the book of Acts, right? Cool thing about Luke is Luke was a doctor. Uh, He was actually... uh, Became the Apostle Paul's personal doctor, traveled with him, probably right up to the moment that he died. 
Um, also served as the Apostle Paul's ghostwriter. So many of you get text messages and emails. Not nearly quite the same, um, but just a similar kind of an illustration. If you get text messages and emails that says, from Pastor Joe, or that's not really me. <laughs> I have a ghostwriter. Uh, her name is Andrea. <laughs> so you know she sends those. I don't send those. Um, in a similar way, Luke wrote um, uh, much, if not all, of what the Apostle Paul wrote later. Uh, but here he kind of gets his start. <clears throat> Luke is a very detailed writer um, as he writes. He, he includes details that are super important to us, that will get our attention, that will connect us to the history of Israel, and, and will give us some of the significance and the importance of what's taking place as Jesus sends the Holy Spirit uh, to enable the church. And uh, here, as he begins the book of Acts, he begins by uh, reminding us of everything that he's already written uh, in his first letter, right? The Gospel of Luke. Um, and he addresses the letter to a man named Theophilus. Um, side note, we used to have this little dog, and we named him Theophilus. We called him Theo. The problem was is he could never quit, quit pissing on everything in our house. So we had to get rid of him. Um, poor dog. <laughs> I don't know why we called him Theophilus. I just really was in love with the name because, I say I was in love with the name. The name Theophilus actually means something. It means, basically means lover of God or one who loves God. There's a few different ways you could say it, but the general essence is Luke is writing to somebody who loves God. And the first implication here is this. Do you love God? Well, that's probably one of the first implications. Do you love God? Or could you be known as a Theophilus, right? He addresses it to Theophilus. And then what he does is he kind of summarizes in the first couple of verses Jesus' final days on earth here. And he gives us kind of this picture of Jesus giving his disciples some final commands, some final instructions. And he even includes this little detail. He does it over the course of about 40 days. Now that's an interesting uh, thing. Uh, in about 10 days in, in the timeline, in about 10 days, the disciples are going to be in this little upper room. They're going to be praying. The Holy Spirit's going to show up, and there's going to be lights and fire and smoke and all sorts of stuff. And they're going to speak in other languages. It's going to be whack. People are going to think they're walking around drunk. We're going to get to that in a couple weeks. Um, what he does here is he summarizes that over the course of about 40 days, uh, Jesus is giving these instructions to his disciples. And really the main thrust of what Jesus says to his disciples here, everything that we read here, the main thrust is basically missional in nature, okay? It's all about mission. Jesus is about to continue his mission. Now, you might say, what is Jesus' mission? Well, you could look a few different places in the scriptures to find it, but one of the um, rules of biblical interpretation is just go with the author, right? Go with the author, go with Luke. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke. So obviously he wrote something about what Jesus said in his time here. And you would think that in Luke's Gospel, Jesus would have said something about what his mission was to do here. And you might remember a story about a wee little man. A wee little man was he. What was his name? Zacchaeus. And when Jesus meets Zacchaeus and he goes, he kind of invites himself over. I'm going to come to your house today and talk to you. And over the course of time, talking to Zacchaeus, at some point, Zacchaeus gets up and he repents from everything. He's like, how can I be a part of your kingdom, Jesus? And Jesus is like, go do this. And Zacchaeus is like, all right, I did that. And then some, now what? And Jesus goes, hey, the son of man came to what? Who knows it? Seek and to save that which is lost. So that's the mission of Jesus. That's Jesus' mission. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. You want to know some of the things that Jesus didn't say he came to do? He didn't come to overthrow a bad nation. 
He didn't come to fix all of society's problems, necessarily. You can kind of parse that out, but there are a lot of things Jesus didn't come to do. What he did come to do was to seek and to save that which was lost. So, you're thinking about Jesus' mission here. You think about the fact that this is what he came to do, to seek and to save that which was lost. Why? So that he can then take those newly found people, those new believers, and turn them into what? Church attendees? <laughs> Disciples, right? He, he wants to make them into spirit-empowered witnesses, I would say, to the ends of the earth. This is in line with, with all of the other statements Jesus made throughout the Gospels about what it means to spread the Gospel to the ends of the earth. Now here's the thing. You can't be a spirit-empowered witness without the presence of the Holy Spirit. You might go, duh. Everybody say, duh. Well, it's a duh point, I know. But you can't. You can't be a spirit-empowered witness to the ends of the earth without the Holy Spirit. No, I should be careful. No, yeah, I'll, be, I'll come back to that. I have a thought in my head, and I, just, I need to test whether it's the Lord or not. So I'll just keep moving. This is why Jesus commands... And this is why Jesus commands the disciples to wait in Jerusalem until the promised Holy Spirit comes and baptizes them with his infilling presence. Now I'll go ahead and go there. I was sitting here on Facebook. Y'all spent time on Facebook, most of you, I'm sure. I'm on Facebook last night, and at some point I started this video, and Christy's like, what in the heck are you listening to? Like, it's not one of those, is it? <laughs> yeah, it is. One of these reels, you ever watch those reels on Facebook or social media? Um, it was one of a, like really whack, crazy Pentecostal experience. Okay. So this dude up front, and he's like quivering and shaking, and then he just looks really strange. And you have people laying on the floor, and they're laughing. People like running around in circles, and they're like dancing, and they're like making weird faces, and they're like shouting. And uh, in the caption of this, this video says, the spirit is really moving here. And I'm like, really? The, spirit, the Spirit's really moving there. And so then you got the preacher, right? He's not preaching. He doesn't have the Bible in his hand. And he's walking around, he's going, stand up. Fire! And everybody would fall over and start wheeling around on the floor. I make this point for a reason. <laughs> there are a lot of counterfeits today, and I would stand on the fact that that's a counterfeit. Uh, most of you probably don't know, uh, you know I got my early start in, uh, in walking with Jesus in a Pentecostal church, helped to plant a Pentecostal church. Um, the church we planted wasn't <laughs> Pentecostal like that, just so you know. Um, I would always say probably, I'm, 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 I'm a, how do I say, I'm a Reformed Baptocostal. Yeah, so I'm a mutt, <laughs> that's what it comes down to. <laughs> I'm very Reformed in my theology, <laughs> very Calvinistic. Um, I also believe in the move of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, not to the extent that you're running around barking and you know, meowing and shaking on the floor. Um, that looks demonic to me, let's be honest. Um, and then we're also Baptists, right? We believe in baptism. So <laughs> as you study the book of Acts, you're going to find that the Holy Spirit himself is mentioned more times by Luke throughout this book than any other author. And so the Holy Spirit is very central to our identity as Christians who have a responsibility to be witnesses to the ends of the earth. Now, as Jesus is standing in front of his disciples, talking to them about being spirit 
Empowered witnesses. The key again is you can't be a spirit-empowered witness unless you have the Holy Spirit. And so he tells them, he says, hey, you guys need to go back to Jerusalem, wait for a little while, wait till the Holy Spirit comes and baptizes you, fills you with his presence. And I'm thinking about the disciples in the story. Uh, This would have uh, absolutely confused them. In fact, you can kind of see that from the way that Luke writes the narrative, right? It confuses them because the disciples are not expecting Jesus to do this. What the disciples are expecting Jesus to do is to restore the kingdom of Israel by crushing their Roman oppressors. And you see that in the question they ask in verse 6. They ask, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Here's what you have to remember. When you're trying to bridge the gap from like the biblical culture and biblical timeline to us today. When you're trying to do some of that work and thinking through that. You kind of have to put yourself in the shoes of the people in the story, right? You've got to walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak, to kind of understand what's going on. You have to remember at this time, when the disciples are talking to Jesus as he's given his final words to them, they are at this point in time far removed from the establishment of the nation of Israel in the promised land. So if you have any familiarity with the Bible whatsoever, you might think way back at least a few hundred years ago, if not longer, (coughs) at some point Joshua leads the nation of Israel into the promised land, right? You might remember that story when you think of the uh, story of Jericho. Have you ever been in a kid's church at some point? You sing a song about marching around the walls of Jericho and the walls came tumbling down, right? I think that sounded like Johnny Cash. I like Johnny Cash. So the walls came tumbling down. At that point in Joshua, in the book of Joshua, many years in the past, Israel is getting established in the promised land. This is the place that God had promised from the beginning, really, all the way from Adam to Abraham to Moses, Isaac, Jacob, so on and so forth. It was a promise. This is where I'm taking you. I'm going to establish you as a nation. I'm going to make your name great. I'm going to bless people through you. And anybody who doesn't bless you, I'm going to take them out. Um, Really what it is is a reoccurring story for us. Promised land is an image of heaven. It's where we're headed someday. Our promised land is heaven, not here on this earth. Right? When Jesus came, he, he says, hey, my, my kingdom has nothing to do with this earth. I'm going to establish my kingdom on this earth, but it's not an earthly kingdom. That's the point. It's a heavenly kingdom. So way back then, in the promised land, that happens, right? And you know what happens immediately after that in Israel's history is they get banished from the promised land. What does that remind you of? Biblical history. Somebody else got banished from a place that was really, really beautiful, and they got banished because of their sin and their rebellion, right? We know who we're talking about, right? The Garden of Eden. This is a story that continues to revolve over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. So I love biblical theology. I geek out over it because when these stories kind of revolve over and over again, it's meant to show us something about ourselves. That's what it's meant to do. It's meant to reveal some of the longings and the desires of our hearts and the reasons that we long and desire for something that we think is going to be heavenly. I don't know what that is for you. Well, for me, it's like a big fat steak and a Harley and a cigar. Sorry. It's true. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) 
at this point in the story, with Jesus talking to his disciples, all that's in the rear view. They've been banished from the promised land. They were exiles for a long time. At some point, you do the study in the book of Ezra, which we did as a church, do Nehemiah. They've been, they've been in exile for a long time. They are brought back to the promised land, right? And God, God has promised them, I'll bring you back. I'm going to rebuild. If you would turn to me, if you would repent of your sin, I'm going to bless you again. He brings them back in Ezra and Nehemiah. They, they rebuild the city of Jerusalem. They rebuild the temple. But it's not the same. It's not the same as the old temple. It's not the same as the, the old Jerusalem. It's different now. Why is it different? It's different because it's not just Israel anymore. There's another nation there. There's another entity there. And they're, they're under that entity's oppression. Don't you know that that is what we live under? It's not, we may be a free nation here in America. We're Americans, right? But we still live under the rule and the reign, so to speak, of another entity, an invisible entity. His name is Satan. Satan, sin, and death. Though God is absolutely sovereign, in charge, and in control, we are not in Eden, the garden. We are not in the promised land. We're not in heaven yet. There's another oppressive presence that is always constantly here. And what the disciples are expecting at this point, because in their day it was Rome. They were oppressive. And they're expecting Jesus to do that. And Jesus says, no, not going to do that. I mean, you put yourself in their shoes, right? They just watched their, their Messiah, their, their rabbi, their pastor, their teacher, their friend. He's just died on a cross, which is really discombobulating to think about anyways, because it's like, Really? When I thought you were going to come and be the king and like rule over everything, and now you just died on a cross. You died horrifically. You died of the death that, that sinners are supposed to die. And the crazy thing is, three days later, he leaves the tomb empty. That's nutso. He leaves the tomb empty. I mean, I, we've all been to funerals, right? We, we don't go to those funerals expecting to see someone walk out of that grave. Three days later, you and I might wish and hope that our lost loved one would show back up. And even sometimes, I mean, I've lost people, and I know, like, three days later, sometimes you see these mirages as though they are there, and they're not yet, right? And in fact, when it comes to the resurrection, there's been arguments for eons about how that's all it was. So we go, back to the, go back to the text. Forty days Jesus showed up among them, proving that he was alive. That would... From the day of his death to the resurrection to then 40 days of spending time with him, that would just absolutely rock your world. It's not what you expect to happen. At some point in there, you start to hope again, right? You start to go, oh, holy, holy smokes, he, he died? He left the tomb empty? He can do anything. I bet you, I bet you he's going to remove all of our oppressors. And so they ask him. Are you at this time going to do that? And what does he say? Hey, that's not for you to know the times. It's not for you to know the times. They longed. They hoped for this. But here's the thing. Jesus had a completely different mission in mind, didn't he? That was not his mission. He had a completely different mission in mind. His mission, like I said, is to come and to seek and to save those who are lost, to make them into spirit and power witnesses to the ends of the earth until he returns. In fact, I think you could take this a step further just for a moment and dabble on it. Because don't we all kind of get this thought in our heads that well, if I just go to church, my life's going to get better? Anybody ever get that? I mean, I, 
I remember years ago when I first started following Jesus and going to church, and I was a, boy, I was a mess. <laughs> I'm still a mess, but I remember at that time going to church and thinking, God's going to fix my marriage. If I just go to church, he's going he's to fix my kids and help me be a better father. And all those things are true to an extent, right? <clears throat> Jesus' mission really is not a mission to eliminate your suffering or my suffering. That's really not the mission here on this earth. Jesus' mission is not necessarily to eliminate all the suffering in his people and then to usher in some kind of new utopian reality, right? Jesus is not showing up here to remove all of our enemies and give us a, like a really nice, cush, lavish lifestyle in the suburbs, okay? And suburbs aren't bad. It just you know, plants an image in your head. That's not that's the one's really his mission. It doesn't matter where you live. That's not the point. That was not his mission. Jesus' mission is, in fact, about sending his people, the people that he has ransomed and redeemed and lavished his love upon, his mission is to take those people and then send them back out under the power of his spirit into a few different spaces. And in Acts 1.8, he says that, right? I'm going to send you out to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is our own backyard. This is a place of comfort. Judea and Samaria, this is, this is a little further out. This is a place of not so much comfort for a lot of reasons. We'll come back to that in a little bit. And I'm going to send you to the, to the furthest, darkest regions of the ends of the earth. That's the essence of Acts 1.8. In fact, when you think about that verse, that verse is actually the outline of the spread of the gospel as believers proclaim the gospel of the crucified, risen, and now returning Savior throughout the book of Acts. So think of the book of Acts. This should be on the screen for you here in a minute. It's somewhere. There you go. Yeah, good. So there is actually an outline. This verse is actually the key to studying the book. Um, in chapters 1 through 7, what we see is a description of the gospel rippling, okay? It's rippling out throughout Israel's backyards in Jerusalem. It's all ministry in Jerusalem at that point. And then chapters 8 through 11 describe that gospel continuing to ripple. You think about throwing a rock into a pond and the ripples and the ringlets move out. This is what's taking place in, in chapters 8 through 11. It's, it's rippling out, as those spirit-empowered disciples proclaim Christ in some of the grimiest, dirtiest, darkest, fringiest, not like fringes on a jacket, fringiest places that most of us probably don't want to go to, the places that make you the most uncomfortable. Finally, chapters 12 through 28, then describe those ripples continuing to the ends of the known earth. So the whole point here is you think about this, this little summary I'm giving that's taking way too long. <laughs> you think about this little summary. The whole point here is that the gospel was never meant to be contained by these little boxes of church buildings where, I hate to say, but lazy Christians come to be entertained. I, I anticipate that this room is not like that, I hope. It was meant to be like a massive rock thrown into the ocean that creates a tidal wave or a tsunami. That's, that's what it's supposed to be like. It really brings a whole new perspective on what it means to be the church. 
uh, when you think about this and when you do this study through the book of Acts. Now, once Jesus explains his mission to his disciples, he instructs them to wait in Jerusalem for the Holy Spirit, then what does he do? Right? Like according to the video, he ascends into heaven. And when he ascends into heaven, he ascends in this great cloud of smoke. Now, you may not initially pick it up when you're reading it. And it's like, oh, okay. Because here's the problem. Like, you ever been to an NFL game? Maybe only a few of us have. I don't know. You've been to the fair, right, where there's really bright lights? Lots of smoke and stuff like that. It's very entertaining, right? It catches your attention. And when you read this image of Jesus ascending into heaven with a little bit of smoke, it's like, oh, cool. Maybe that's justification for getting smoke machines in a church. No, it's not. It's, it's not. It's not. <laughs> really, in that moment, though, the disciples are absolutely mesmerized by what they're seeing. And they're just standing there staring into the heavens in awe, like, Holy smokes. Right? And as they're standing there and they're witnessing this awesome display of power as Jesus heads up to heaven in a great display of smoke, you've got two angels that show up, instruct those disciples. Hey man, quit standing around. Quit standing around, entertained by the smoke show. <laughs> Get after it. Let's go. Let's go. Jesus is going to come back soon. Let's go. That's the point. So already you can see, just in the first 11 verses, in my opinion, the story starts off. Uh, lots of action, lots of smoke, no smoke machines in the church, please. At the end of the day, when, when you think about Jesus, and Jesus, <laughs> Jesus' mission, Jesus' mission is not to meet your felt needs. As much as there was this like seeker-sensitive movement in the church for years where they thought, boy, if we could just connect with people's felt needs, then we could like hook them with the gospel, and then they'd never know what happened. Right? It was, I mean, it was a great philosophy, a really good idea. It's like, oh, hey, we're going to fish for people, so we're going to put the right bait on the hook. Yo, you like gifts? Because we'll give a gift to every person that shows up to church. And then, you know, the problem with that is when you don't get gifts when you show up to church, you don't come back. <laughs> you know? Like, I mean, you look at some of the wealthier, wealthier churches on TV, and they've got cars on the stage, and they're, you know, doing drawings. If you show up, you get a raffle ticket. And in fact, if you like the third person, you get 30 raffle tickets, and you get a better chance of winning the car. It's like the Price is Right meets church, Okay? <laughs> oh boy Jesus' mission is not to meet your felt needs not to remove you from all the hardship you've been facing certainly not to draw you into a comfortable uh, westernized version of Christianity it only requires you to show up on Sundays to be entertained, just be encouraged Jesus' mission is to seek and to save the lost we keep saying it over and over and over again I want to drive it home to seek and to save the lost so that he can make you into a spirit-empowered witness who absolutely shakes the earth with your proclamation of the gospel. But here's the question I want to try to wrestle with with the rest of our time. What does it mean to be a spirit-empowered witness? What does it actually mean? And what hinders us? <coughs> if we can wrap our mind around what it actually means and what it looks like, to be a spirit-empowered witness. If we kind of wrap our minds around that, uh, and then maybe we need to wrestle a little bit with what hinders us from being that, right? So that we can ask the Spirit of God to help us move through those barriers and become more of that. So that's what I want to do with the rest of our time. First thing I notice when I look at the text, you've already heard me kind of say it, I think here's what it means. Like, spirit-empowered witnesses love God like Theophilus, Right? That's what spirit-empowered witnesses look like. It's what they do. They love God like Theophilus. Now, think about what this means. 
What does it mean to love God like Theophilus? Well, it was just an interesting thing I was thinking about earlier uh, this week. If, if Theophilus means a person who loves God, um, what's the most immediate thing that like jumps off the text and the story at you? Luke is writing a letter to him, and it's God's word, right? It's God's word, that he's, and he's, he's done this twice now. If you go back to the beginning of Luke, you see that he addresses it to Theophilus there too. So one of the first, like, lowest hanging implications of what it means to love God like Theophilus is to love God's word. I was like, well, that's pretty basic and simple, right? It's to love God's word. Theophilus is getting these letters from Luke that are going to be God's word. He loves God, so he loves God's word. I've repeated it over and over and over again, haven't I? The thing about Theophilus is I don't, I don't think that, that Theophilus would have any excuse. I won't say reason, because there are no reasons. There's only excuses when it comes to not reading God's word with other people. That's, there's no reasons. There, there's only excuses, and we all have them, right? And I don't think Theophilus had that, and I think Luke knew that about Theophilus. He loved God. He loved God's word. That nothing stops people who actually love God from studying his word with other believers. Why? Here's the reason why. Because believers who love God and love his word and, and invest and sacrifice in what it means to read and study God's word with other believers, people who reach that point in their growth with Jesus, right? Relationship. Because if you think about your relationship with Jesus, you can either be a two-year-old, Right? who needs the diaper changed, and we had our grandbaby in the house last night, and that kid is whack crazy, okay? Fiery red hair, and he can walk a little bit now on his own. And so, you know, you kind of get this thought in your mind at some point where it's like, well, he's walking on his own. He's probably gonna, no, he's not going to be okay. He's going to bonk his head on things. I kind of need to follow him around. He does not love doing things that mature people do. <laughs> he's not mature. He's like, what is he, a year old, right? We can stay there. And, I, and I, I, give, I would give lots of grace for somebody who's like a year old in their faith and does not love reading God's word yet. And at some point, there has to be a little bit of maturity where you go, you know, reading God's word with other people, it's going to cost me something. I'm going to have to get in my car. I'm going to have to drive a few miles to do so. I'm going to have to leave my family behind while I do it. Uh, I'm going to have to like endure the shame and the guilt of not being able to read really well or understand the Bible. I'm going to have to, there's a cost there to that and I think you reach this point in your journey that as you begin to kind of obey God that way right there's there's a point in that journey where you begin to realize that man the reason I'm doing this is not because my pastor said I have to do this and he beat me up on a Sunday morning and he used these analogies of babies and I feel really bad it's it's not because of that. at some point you reach a point where you go you know what me studying the word of God with other believers at the end of the day, that's the only thing. God's word is the only thing that's going to establish me and mature me as well as give me the strength to be on mission. And once you get to that point, you become an owner of your own spiritual journey. You no longer need somebody to feed you with a bottle. Does that make sense? Again, this is just normal. Like This is the natural progression of what it means to grow in Jesus. So it, there's no shame 
I don't want to speak shame in this. I know that even my tone of voice at times, the analogies I can use can cause that. I don't want to cause that in this room. So I'm going to, Spirit of God, please move that away, right? Fire, everybody fall down. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) No, it's none of that. It's just real talk, okay? And, uh, and, And don't feel like... in what I'm saying, if the Holy Spirit is saying to you, you know what, you kind of are like two years old in your faith right now, and I'd like to see you grow up to you're about three, maybe. My, my point is, is don't try to be a gazelle. Most of us move like snails. It's okay. okay. Um, just take the next step, whatever that might look like for you. A fully grown, fully mature believer loves to study God's word. They love God, and the proof of that is they love to study God's word with other believers. And you know what they do? They show up consistently, and they do that. That's the proof. Period. End of story. Easy. Jesus, uh, Jesus, you know, spoke to this quite a bit. Here's the problem. I'm one point in and I'm also 40 minutes in. So not even one point. I'm half of one point in. This is the problem with the book of Acts. <laughs> this is something Jesus referred to a lot himself, right? He referred to himself as the manna that came down from heaven. The bread of life that sustains and nurtures and satisfies and strengthens. John 6. On top of all that, Jesus also said, if we're going to really love God, what do we got to do? We got to obey every word that comes from his mouth. How are you going to do that if you ain't reading his word with other people? Period. You can't, right? So to love God like Theophilus is to love the Bible, to love studying it with other brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me try to just cram through the rest of this and hope that it still makes sense and it's good. Second thing I noticed in the text, wait for the Holy Spirit. Right? Wait for the Holy Spirit. Spirit-empowered witnesses wait for the Holy Spirit to baptize them with his infilling presence. Now, I want to make a distinction here that I think is really, really important, okay? When you read the word baptism, you start thinking of a few images in your mind. Um, you might think of um, maybe when you were young and you were sprinkled, right? Actually, there's even a, I've got to send you guys this video, I've got to find it. There's actually a video, and I don't remember what strain of the, I shouldn't do this, bunny, bunny trails aren't good, but I have to. There's a video of like this, these priests that are baptizing babies, they're not sprinkling them, they're dunking them. And they're not just like, bloop, they're like with force, baby in hand, whoosh. Anybody else seen that video? This is a thing, isn't it? It's a thing. It's crazy. I'm like, oh my gosh, you're going to kill a baby. And the funny thing about that video is all the other priests are standing around. They're like, (gasps) absolute horror. Um, So there's maybe those images. You might get sprinkled or dunked as a baby. (laughs) Um, Or believer's baptism, which is something that we believe in here, right? Believer's baptism is when, when you, as a believer, profess your faith in Jesus. This is not the kind of baptism that Jesus is talking about when he tells them to go wait for the Holy Spirit to baptize them. Um, I want to make that distinction. Now, all throughout the book of Acts, you are going to see lots of water baptism and some really cool, interesting stories. It's, pretty, it's, it's crazy. But that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about being baptized by the Holy Spirit. Waiting for the Spirit's baptism is something entirely different. When the Holy Spirit baptizes someone, He literally fills them with His abiding presence and His dynamite power. That much we can all agree on. I don't care if you're Pentecostal, Baptist, or any other. Um, all of the different um, arguments uh, in, in, the, in, in churches happen as to whether, well, when does that baptism happen? Does it happen after or during salvation? Is there some kind of a gift that should accompany that to prove that? That's where all the arguments happen. And I'm just going to stay very basic on what the text actually says, because the text doesn't say anything else. The text simply says, you're baptized by the Spirit, 
So we have dynamite power, dynamic power. In fact, the word that Jesus uses here for power in Acts 1.8, it's this Greek word, everybody say the Greek word after me, dunamis. Or say it again this way, dynamis. So usually it's dynamis is actually typically the word, but I think the root word is dunamis. Anyways, that really doesn't matter, right? Who cares except for that word, dynamis means dynamite. That's what it means. Dynamic, dynamite power. It's the power that you receive when the, bapt- when the Spirit baptizes you. It's not the power to run around like chickens with your heads cut off. It's not the power to fall back under the Spirit, whatever that means. One other note here. <laughs> I always feel like i got to combat some kind of argument out there, so here we go. Um, I don't know if y'all have ever seen people being slain in the spirit when they kind of like fall over because somebody touches your head. If you look in the scriptures and you look for all the times that people actually fell down when they encountered Jesus, you know what they were doing? They were not coming to Jesus going, please knock me out. They were actually coming after Jesus in opposition. So the whole, like, the whole movement of this fall down, being slain in the spirit, seeing gold dust fall from the sky and angel feathers... Like, somebody did too much coke at one point in their lives. That's the problem, <laughs> okay? Sorry, that's just it's where I'm at, and I, I'm moving off of it. Because the Bible is the authority for how theology gets practiced. And so when you don't see that kind of thing in the Bible, you have to go, there's obviously another force at work here, and that's not God. Amen. Thank you. Okay, I'll move on now. I've made my point. <laughs> So, the power that you receive when the Spirit baptizes you, not the power to operate in some spiritual gift, it's the power to give a witness. That's the power you need. It's the power, I mean, how many of you have shared your faith with somebody else? Raise your hand. How many of you have actually led somebody to Jesus? Raise your hand. Okay, and and the rest of you that didn't raise your hand, it's okay. How many of you did that in the last 40 days? Not me. (laughs) I just... I came across that thought, and I thought maybe it was just for me, so it never made it in my manuscript, but I came across that thought like, holy smokes, there was a reason that Jesus had this conversation for 40 days, because 10 days later they're going to get the Spirit, and then it's going to, all heaven's going to break loose in 10 days after the day of Pentecost. And I, I just got to thinking, man, in the last 40 days I've had so many opportunities to share my faith with people. Have, have I been faithful to that? Like, been to the gas station, grocery store, went to the doctor. Went to a clubhouse for a motorcycle club. I mean, I mean, there's some places, you know, come across people, had lunch or dinner with people. Did I share the gospel with them? Did I attempt to lead them to Jesus and say, listen, when you walk out of here, you might die. And I, I'm, Jesus might come back in the next 30 seconds. And I, I'm really concerned for your eternal well-being. This dynamite power that you need is the Spirit. You can read all sorts of books about how to share your faith and how to share the gospel, how to lead people to Jesus. Those books will be meaningless, useless tools, a waste of your money if you do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of you. Because he's the one that gives you the dynamite power to do that. This is about evangelism. This is about sharing the gospel. This is not about special gifts. Or crazy phenomenon that happens when the quote-unquote spirit shows up. Third thing I notice, testify at home, in the grimiest of places, to the ends of the earth. I've kind of spent a bit of time on this already, so I'm just going to briefly summarize without using my notes and move on because I'm at 46 minutes and my time is up. <laughs> I, don't, I don't want to keep you guys too long. Um, this is a very practical outline. 
Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Jerusalem is a good, comfortable spot for you. Your family, your friends, the, the, the waitress who serves you at the restaurant you go to, right? Uh, gas station attendants. Um, that, those are more comfortable places typically. That's Jerusalem. Judea, Samaria, um, that's a very uncomfortable place. When Jesus sat down with the woman at the well in Samaria, he was doing something that no other self-respecting Jew or believer would do. That's a dirty place to go. On top of that, you're talking to a woman who is a prostitute. Jesus, yo, why would you do this? Alone. You didn't even have your brothers with you. What is going on? Some of us have been talking about trying to figure out how to do ministry at the strip club here in, in the community. All of you were like, what are you talking about? No, seriously. Seriously, that was there about 12 of us, I think, in, in, a, in a group. We've sat around and we've talked about that. And we decided it's not a good idea for our guys to go escort strippers from the uh, strip club to their cars and then escort them home to make sure they make it safe. We're just trying to get after human trafficking, seriously. And we're trying to make a dent in that area. Because of our love for Jesus, it would not be a very safe thing for us to do. Why? It's just not safe, <laughs> period. Now, if you can get some women that would go, maybe build relationships with those women, that might make a dent. But to have a bunch of dudes do that could be dangerous. But Jesus, though, Jesus sits with the woman at the well. Imagine if he would have never done that because it was too dangerous, because the risk was too high, or because everybody around him would think, I wonder if he's trying to get it on with that, that girl over there. Those things challenge me when I think about doing mission. And in this day and age, there are safe ways to do these things, right? Anyways, that's, that's the dark areas, the places that you will not go to, the, the places that make your skin crawl, the places that, that creep you out. That's, that's what Judea Samaria is. And I don't know what that is for you. And I'm sure God's put people in your life where you're like, I do not. Want to share Jesus with that person? You might even be in a place where you're like, I hate that person, I don't like them, so I don't even want to share Jesus with them. I'd rather see them dead. That's your Samaria. Last piece of that is to the ends of the earth. And I want to share a quick story with you here. We're at 49 minutes. I apologize. I think there's a picture on the screen. Um, see this man. I talked to this man yesterday on the phone. He lives in Africa. He... Um, He's been trying to call me for the last seven months through Facebook Messenger, and I have ignored every phone call. I'm not going to stand there. <laughs> I ha I'm just I'm going to admit my own failures. I have ignored every phone call, every email, every message he sent me through Messenger because, honestly, I, I was a little bit cynical. I'm like, I don't have any money to send you. I don't have any resources for you. Silver and gold have I not, but what I do have I give to you. Gosh, it breaks my heart. I finally decided to take a phone call. And uh, his, name is, his name is Pastor Brian. He started planting a church in Africa in his home in 2018. At the age of 18, he's 33 now, at the age of 18 he was living on the street homeless. And a pastor had the guts, or somebody had the guts, to walk up and down the street and share the gospel with people, which is not a strategy I ever get in line with. Abe likes that kind of strategy. I don't. I don't walk up and down the streets preaching to people. I think it's crazy. And he's crazy. <laughs> yes. And Abe, in those moments, you may be far more obedient than I am. <laughs> okay. He gets saved, starts following Jesus. 
Back in 2018, he decides, God's called me. God's called me to plant a church in my home, in my home. So he and his wife start a church gathering with uh, four other people. Ironic to me because we started this church with six. I just, I think God's doing something inside of me in this. So um, I'm, I'm talking to him, I'm listening to him. And, and he, I could go on forever. He started out with six people. Uh, it, the, the other four people stopped coming because he was preaching the word too hard. And it was just him and his wife. And he goes, God, did you really call me to do this? I really believe you called me to do this. Why are the numbers so low? And he said, I just, I stuck with it. And since 2018 till now, he, his church grew to uh, 26 adults. I want you to hear this too. Gosh. It didn't just grow to 26 adults. It grew to 18 orphans living in his home with he and his wife because they can't walk past these kids in the streets and leave them there. They don't have running water in their home. They walk two and a half miles one direction. His wife gets up with 18 kids that aren't theirs that they picked up out of the street and they walk to the watering hole in the morning with their buckets in their, and their, and their jugs because he wanted to reach people and he wanted to be obedient to God's word and take care of the orphans. His wife gets up with those 18 kids. How many of you got 18 kids? None of us. Well, probably the Nelsons do. <laughs> okay. A little bit of laughter helps. She gets up with those 18 kids and walks one way. That's five miles when you count it. Just to get water to cook with, take a bath with. And they don't just do that once a day, they do it twice a day. <laughs> I don't know how many of you have been in this place, but we have seven kids. And it was like, you know, getting up and getting seven kids in a car and getting to church every week because I call myself a believer and that's what I'm supposed to do. That was kind of hard. Um, I can't imagine walking 10 miles a day to get water with your kids. And they're living in this little house that, that is half the size of our upstairs. And they don't have beds, they have little mats that those kids sleep on. Their church building uh, has posts with a little overhang on it. And they, they walk to that to meet. And you know when they meet on Sunday mornings? You want to know how long they meet for? Five hours. You know, I told him when he said that, I said, I wouldn't even have a church full of people here if I did that. People in America don't love God that way. We're not desperate enough. We get up on Sunday mornings, we have a comfortable car, we come to comfortable seats. We have a thermostat. Before I got up here to preach, I asked my wife to get me a glass of water. Here it is. She didn't walk five miles to get it for me. Nor did she wrangle 18 kids to go do it. The rest of us are spoiled. I want to move to Africa. I want to go to a place where people are actually desperate for Jesus. That's what I want to do. I want to feel that desperation. I want to feel that urgency to share the gospel with anybody. I want to feel the urgency to obey God by picking up orphans off the street and taking care of them. It's the kind of church I want to be part of. That's why we wrote that mission statement, right? A rescue mission within the yard of hell. The beautiful thing about all you guys that are gathered here is I think all of you kind of get that. And I'm thankful for that. The last point in this sermon is this. Now those angels, they told the disciples, get busy. Just get after it. And the only way you're going to get after it is feeling that urgency that Jesus could return in the next few moments. People who pray for the Holy Spirit 
to come and fill them to get on mission, to live this life, to not just, God, please help me get to church a couple times this month. And when your prayers change from that to, God, help me. God, help me save people. Going to church isn't even a thing anymore because you're being a church. So you just get busy. Amen? When you leave here today, whatever exit door you walk out, you're going to see these little signs that says you are now entering the mission field. Sooner or later here, you're going to find that all the exterior doors on this church building are going to be painted red. And you know, that is an ugly idea. It is. It's an ugly idea. You know what's beautiful about it, though? When you and I enter into the body of Christ, when you enter into the church family, you enter in by the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. So those red doors are going to be symbolic of how you get into the church family. The shed blood of Jesus, the broken body of Jesus. When you go back out those doors, you're not just going home to watch football or take a nap or eat lunch. You're entering the mission field. My hope is as we continue this study that the Holy Spirit would just get a hold of your heart for, for more of that. I want to pray. Father, thank you for our time and your word. God, thank you for these people in this room and how gracious they are with the time I just took from them. I pray, God, that you would use it to grow us. Draw us close to you. Show us those places where we might be falling short um, in, in loving you. In loving you by getting into your word with others. Um, Help us to wait on you and to beg for your spirit to come fill us. And help us to get out into those three areas, places where it's comfortable and not comfortable to the ends of the earth. Help us, Father, to get after that business as we walk through those church doors and we leave. Trust you to do that in Jesus' name. Everybody said? You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.